Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, listeners. And we've got a jam-packed um, program for today. We've got Mozibuku um, Jara from South Africa, who will be updating us on uh, what's happening in South Africa. And following that, we have Marcus with the Rank and File Union and, of course, Uncle Kevin. And we also have the uh, interview, an interview with um, Madeline Rees, who is a, um, peace, a Women for Peace organizer from around the UN. And you, I'll give you more details closer to the um, interview. So here we go. This is Mozibuku, a leader of the um, New United Front that's happening in South Africa, an interview with him that I did earlier. Today we're talking to Mazibuku Kanyiso Yaha. He's a, a small farmer who is also the executive director of Ntinga Ntaba Ka Ndoda, a community-controlled organization that works in 13 villages in the Amathol district in South Africa. Yara has been an activist almost all his life, and he is the founder and spokesperson of the Democratic Left Front, which is a new organization. He has held various positions and has been very active in the National Coalition of Gay and Lesbian Equity. Welcome to 3CR. Good afternoon, Lalita. Thanks for having me, and also greetings to your listeners. Yes, it's our pleasure to have you here, and I thought we could talk about um, what's happening in South Africa. It's uh, been very silent on the media front, as far as South Africa goes, uh, what's happened the last 20-odd years since Mandela's been around. As we speak now in March 2015, South Africa is a month away from celebrating 21 years after the defeat of apartheid uh, on the 27th of April 1994. It's a country, though, that's going through a severe economic, social, and political crisis. African National Congress, the ANC, of Nelson Mandela has been unable to change in a fundamental way the social, political, and economic conditions of the large majority of the people. As we speak uh, this week and last week, we have seen a massive rebellion by black students at the University of Cape Town and also at Rhodes University. They have campaigned under the slogan, Rhodes Must Fall, which refers to the continued erection or rather continued standing there of the statue of Cecil John Rhodes. Cecil John Rhodes was one of the major colonialists uh, from the past who disposes people and uh, through that disposition was able then to mine the rich minerals South Africa has. So the symbolism about the statue of Cecil John Rhodes is about, it's, it's basically it's a grievance and a struggle against continued white privilege in the South Africa. The apartheid system basically. Indeed. Hmm. Well, not, 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 not in so far as the rules are gone, the discriminatory laws are gone, mm-hmm. but uh, because Mandela did not touch the roots of white privilege, basically the economy, uh, white people continue to run, control, own, and benefit uh, from from the economy in South Africa, uh, uh, to the extent that essentially what you still have in South Africa are two nations, uh, the one black and poor and dispossessed and humiliated, and the other 
white uh, nation of, of privilege uh, and even denial of, of apartheid, at least in Australia, you have public statements which acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in, 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 white, in white South Africa. Uh, there's there's denial completely. Uh, there's even attempts in Parliament, right in Parliament, a right-wing political party representing white interests, uh, seeks to deny colonialism, making public statements unashamedly. Uh, you get the ANC government shooting down uh, 34 workers in August 2012. That's the Marikana massacre. That's the Marikana massacre. Uh, yes. That massacre... Uh, was committed by police who were under the political control and leadership of the African National Congress. Uh, they were doing that uh, at the behest of white mining capital. Mm. Uh, listen to the name of the company where the strike was, the Marikana strike. Uh, it's called Lonmin. Lonmin is short for the London Mining Company. So uh, you can see basically uh, what that represents. Uh, cheap black labor, that's what the workers were fighting against. Uh, servicing uh, white profits and the ANC stood and chose to be on the side of, of white profits. So essentially listening to that it tells me that the ANC didn't have an economic plan when they took government or did they? To an one? extent yes it's true that they had not developed quite a comprehensive uh, economic policy program but at the same time when they had the choice to make decisions about the direction economically the country should follow. They opted, uh, in essence, to maintain the capitalist system in South Africa. Even worse than that, they then opted to follow the wave at the time of neoliberalism. They allowed liberalization and deregulation of the economy in a big way. So, for example, in 1994, even before the ANC took power in April 1994, it was in a transitional executive structure with the old apartheid government. Uh, that transitional executive structure took a decision to, to get a loan from the, World Trade, from the World Bank as a way of showing that the ANC is committed uh, to engaging with uh, the global financiers. Mm. That has continued to this day. Mm. Um, uh, do, do we know why the ANC actually did that? Why the ANC did not implement the wishes of the people, which was very clear when there was huge campaigns around the world to bring down the apartheid system? Uh, they had a belief that uh, if they allowed uh, the policies that are acceptable to investors, investors would flow into South Africa, and uh, if they flow into South Africa, there would be economic growth, and if there's economic growth, there would be jobs, and if there are jobs, there would be poverty eradicated, and people would be happier. As we know uh, today in South Africa, yes, there has been some economic growth, uh, but that growth has actually been growth on the back of workers. The leader of the trade unions, Kosatu, uh, refers to this situation like this. Uh, he refers to it as, a chicky, as, a, as, a, as an egg and bacon situation, whereby the workers are the bacon, and they have sacrificed their life, and all... Uh, the cap capital and owners of business have, have, have sacrificed a mere egg and they continue uh, to benefit from this growing economy. So that's what has happened in South Africa. You, you've seen basically the end of apartheid that merely removed the shame uh, that apartheid had on South African business. Now South African business is free, is an acceptable investor to invest anywhere in Africa, anywhere in the world without now that uh, bad shame.
that they had when they were under apartheid. Uh, so uh, the ANC could have opted for a different path. Of course, they had to deal with that reality uh, of a changing world. The, the Soviet Union and other countries were collapsing, and uh, America and uh, neoliberalism were quite powerful across the world. So it was quite a difficult moment without a doubt. Mm. But at the same time, there was no compelling pressure for the ANC to take that one path only. Uh, we own the minerals. The, those minerals are needed. Then they, they could have used that fact as a, as a bargaining mm. uh, instrument. They didn't even do that. Yeah, what, what surprises me is they had the people, there are 80 million people in South Africa, and so 11 million are white. You've had basically the rest of the population supporting the ANC, and yet they chose to take a neoliberal path. Indeed, the, the, the coming into power of the ANC in 1994 was on the back of one of the biggest mass movements mm. uh, in, 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 in the, in, world, in the really? history of yes. the world, of the continent. Yes. Uh, it was workers' energies, it was the energies of the poor that mm. brought the, uh, and their aspirations, that brought Mandela to freedom, that took Mandela out of, of, out of jail. Uh, that, all of that energy was demobilized almost quickly uh, after they got into power. Uh, today, they are in a situation where they cannot even uh, retrace their steps. Instead, through a document they call the National Development Plan, even though it sounds positive, but actually the policies they are committing to in the National Development Plan are the very same policies that have made unemployment worse, that have kept poverty uh, quite severe, that have continued to ensure that black people live in indecent, intolerable townships and the ghetto uh, throughout South Africa, whether it is Soweto or any other township uh, around the big towns. Mm. I just wanted to now move on to the popular movements within South Africa. Perhaps we could talk about COSATU, which is the Congress of South African uh, Trade Unions, which is uh, equivalent to ACTU in Australia. What's happening in COSATU? Because that is one of the biggest uh, trade union coalitions in Africa, isn't it? COSATU was formed in uh, 1985. At its height, it had some 2 million workers, uh, 19 affiliates, that is, different trade unions putting together COSATU. Today, COSATU is split right in the middle between those who believe that COSATU must remain in an alliance with Mandela's ANC and the Communist Party, and that is in alliance with the government. Uh, and then there are those who are saying, actually, this alliance does not work for the workers because mm. workers continue to be sacrificed, uh, and then the alliance continues to be uh, the political elite that is ruling because it's got this mass support, uh, and then it is ruling on behalf of business. So now uh, the Metal Workers Union, NUMSA, is leading uh, the, red, the radical argument, uh, which is calling for a strong left uh, position of COSATU. As a result of that uh, division in COSATU, COSATU has now become weaker and weaker. Uh, the, the forces that want COSATU to remain in alliance with the ANC are in control of the structures and machinery of COSATU, and they used that control to expel the metal workers. The expulsion of the metal workers has galvanized other unions inside COSATU, and the mass base uh, of many unions in COSATU, ordinary workers, but also workers and unions outside COSATU as well, because there are other unions outside COSATU. Uh, 
the, the expulsion just took place recently in November. The last expulsion year. was yes was was in the last quarter of last year after Umsa had a, a congress in December 2013. In that congress, they put out very strong and powerful statements. Let me just say a few of them. Uh, the ANC is a political party of of business. It's a political party of neoliberalism. It is not possible to uh, reclaim the ANC and win it back to a path of progressive policies of redistribution uh, and so on. The second statement they said, which is also important, is that the South African Communist Party, despite its rhetoric, despite its radical-sounding name, uh, is basically serving as a junior partner to the ANC and will not do anything uh, to challenge the ANC or neoliberalism or capitalism. The other thing they said about the Communist Party was that it is no longer possible to win the Communist Party into a path of working-class-led uh, socialism. Once they said those two statements, uh, the conclusion they reached was that uh, then it's time for metal workers and other workers in South Africa to explore the need for a new party of workers based on a socialist program, based on, on, on a new left party of workers. Uh, but the other thing they realized was that a political party is only one instrument. You also have in South Africa a range of movements, workers, social movements, civic organizations, progressive churches, women, youth and students, but also very importantly, rural movements. Once they realized that, they, they also said those range of organizations need to come together under one umbrella of a united front. Uh, so, so now NUMSA is spearheading two important processes, uh, the formation of a united front to bring together uh, the, the, the large number of mass organizations. By the way, these mass organizations are largely radical, have socialist instincts, uh, and are organizing uh, in, in, in many communities. But also, they are, they've, they've done interesting work visiting Bolivia, Brazil, Kerala, and Greece as well, talking to left parties in those countries to learn uh, about the experiences of those countries in building a mass-based workers' workers' parties. So you you mentioned um, students, rural movements, women, and so on. Um, I believe the students have been rallying recently and had mass demonstrations against, uh, as you said before, the roads must fall thing. Let me start with the, uh, uh, the movement, that is the uh, rural students and, 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 and women's organizations. From the 1980s, you saw the emergence of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, uh, that were helping people uh, who were being forcibly removed from their land, even going back to several decades before the 1980s. So those NGOs continued to dominate what happens in the land struggle, in the rural struggles. But what that meant was that rural people themselves did not have organizations of their own that were real social movements of political struggle. But we began to see a turn in the early 2000s. You now have actually hundreds of small farmer organizations, uh, rural women coming together in the Rural Women's Assembly. Uh, you're also getting uh, uh, organizations that represent uh, rural youth uh, uh, or even the landless, uh, calling themselves openly the Maubuye Land Rights Forum. The name Maubuye Land Rights Forum means, Maubuye means let Africa return. Uh, so so you're beginning to see people becoming bolder uh, and also farm workers, by the way, farm workers uh, came out in a massive strike 
in November 2013. That strike lasted for three months up until February 2014, November 2012 to February 2013. That strike was the first time strike by farm workers, but importantly, it won a massive increase uh, in the minimum wage for farm workers, something that had not been won by the NGOs when they, were going, when they went to negotiate with government. So that's quite significant. Now these are coming together. After, after as I was saying, since the early 2000s, after some 10 years of st- struggling in localized areas, in December last year, these various initiatives came together to form one national land movement uh, and is part of the United Front. That's a significant step in the political organization of rural people. One of the attacks that uh, they are, the rural movements are facing is the deliberate action of the ANC government to give undemocratic powers uh, to tribal chiefs. By the way, tribal chiefs were co-opted by apartheid as systems of apartheid rule, uh, indirect rule. And uh, the democratic struggles in the 1980s had actually defeated tribal chiefs. Now the ANC is giving us the scheme of apartheid uh, to use tribal chiefs uh, to exercise social control in rural areas. So rural movements are fighting against this. Uh, Very key also in rural movements is the role women are playing. They are playing a seminal role. Uh, 59% of most rural areas in South Africa is actually women. 59% of the population is actually women which is unusual uh, because uh, in the, if you look at the urban townships, it's, 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 it's almost even. So r- women are quite a strong voice uh, in, in, in rural areas. Students have traditionally been organized in a, board, in a political body that's linked to the ANC called the South African Students' Congress. But uh, that South African Students' Congress had for a long while not been able to take forward demands of students the many students at university are excluded financially uh, or are subject to uh, inhuman conditions living uh, without without living quarters or without uh, money for, for, for textbooks and so on. So now you've seen the emergence of independent student groups who call themselves various names, Students for Social Justice, uh, the Black Students Movement, uh, the Socialist Students Organization and so on. And now... The United Front, which I am part of, had called a national meeting in February, bringing together these various students uh, to say, what do we do to rebuild an independent student movement? That is a process that is going to lead to a national conference later on. Uh, but out of their own action, students at the University of Cape Town and Rose University have really demonstrated what radical direct action can do to capture uh, the energy and the anger of young people uh, who basically get humiliated on the basis of their race and class at, uh, at, at these universities. Uh, and then, having captured that, that anger, harnessing it into a real movement that challenges unresolved questions in that society. Right now, today, thanks to the students, there's massive debate about the colonial and apartheid legacy of, of, of South Africa. The other issue that has always interested me is um, the Indians and so-called coloreds in uh, South Africa. From the days of Mahatma Gandhi, we've got the history of um, mm-hmm. that population in South Africa. Now, I believe that Steve Biko um, and so on were very inclusive in trying to build that black consciousness in South Africa, inclusive of the Indians and the so-called colored. In current days, they have actually been excluded and they tend to vote with the whites in the, the chauvinist uh, party, from what I believe. 
So what is happening there to ostracize them in that fashion? And perhaps you can also link that with what is the approach of the new left group that you're forming towards that? Historically, in the struggle against apartheid, there were, when, when the struggle started out in 1912 and uh, 1914 with Mahatma Gandhi, Africans organized separately. Uh, through the African National Congress, uh, Indians organized separately, led by Mahatma Gandhi, and then this got called the Indian National Congress later mm. on, the South African Indian Congress, actually. And then uh, colored people, mixed-race people, were also organizing separately in an organization called the South African Colored People's Organization. Uh, and then progressive whites were organizing in, mm. in something called the Congress of Democrats. So it was really <laughs> four nations yes. <laughs> <laughs> coexisting. Yeah. But um, the seminal moment in changing that was the 1955 Freedom Charter, uh, which brought people together in quite a significant way. It declared that South Africa belongs to all who live in it black and white. Uh, so from that moment on, this was in 1955, you then began to develop a stronger common sense amongst all oppressed groups, uh, Africans, mixed race people, uh, and Indian people. Uh, by the time Steve Biko came in the 1970s, he then deepened that into the notion of black consciousness. If, if, you, are, if you are not white and if you are oppressed, then you are part of, of the oppressed black people in the world, not just in South Africa. Mm. That continued throughout the 80s, but now, after 1994, when the ANC got to power, the ANC used a very strange formulation that said it stood for the liberation of black people in general and Africans in particular. Once it put it in those terms, it began to create schisms uh, that re-racialized going back to that notion of four nations I was talking about mm. earlier. Also, the ANC has made some mistakes in implementing affirmative action, which is important. It has used this formulation of blacks in general and Africans in particular to emphasize that uh, the so-called Africans uh, come first in the line uh, at the expense at times of colored people and, and, and Indian people. Yeah, so you can imagine then the alienation and uh, the grievance that would generate. Uh, of course, apartheid did create uh, a ladder whereby Africans were at the bottom of the ladder. Mm. But if the ANC was progressive, it needed to think very carefully about what it means to resolve problems of the past. And then, of course, if you follow neoliberal policies in a, in a capitalist economy that's controlled by a few, you're going to force the oppressed to fight amongst themselves. You're going to force some of the oppressed to actually leave the camp of the oppressed and go to the other side. That's what has happened. Okay. The relationship of South Africa to the other surrounding nations like Zimbabwe and so on. What are the influences of, of any of that in South Africa, if any? The ANC government should have led a, a serious program of regional integration, uh, bringing together Zambia, Zimbabwe, mm. Namibia, Swaziland, Botswana, and South Africa into possibly a single political entity, but obviously an economic entity. Uh, it, the ANC continue, but by the way, the South African economy uh, dominates the other economies. Zimbabwe probably imports all of its food and, and other products from South Africa. The ANC has maintained a system of continued South African domination of the other smaller economies. Mm. And this domination is basically uh, at the, uh, in the interests of white business, 
white landowners, white companies, white white banks, and so on. As the South African economy dominates, what you have also seen in the other economies is sluggish economic growth, therefore joblessness. Of course, Zimbabwe had its own crisis when uh, Robert Mugabe of course. Um, uh, basically became more authoritarian, whilst also leading an interesting program of land redistribution. But all of that collapsed the Zimbabwean economy. Uh, of course, the, the, the role of imperialism and, and mm. sanctions played a role there. So you've seen a massive migration from Zimbabwe uh, in particular, but also other countries into South Africa. Now, you've got this massive migration. On the other hand, the mass of the people in South Africa are not seeing uh, change, economic change in their lives. So that has led to severe strain, mm. to severe tensions and uh, outbreaks of xenophobic violence by black African South Africans mm. against black African people from 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 the other countries uh, so so that's why I was saying earlier if the ANC was a progressive force in in the way it should have been uh, it should really have uh, uh, taken significant steps to lead the cultural political social uh, integration of, of that region uh, what it has failed to do uh, is at odds with its claim to stand for an African renaissance because on the platform of the African Union uh, which brings together the different countries in the continent, it proclaims uh, an African renaissance. And yet its daily policies, the daily impact of those policies, reinforces African disintegration. The other question I have is the influence of China. In Australia, at least, there has been a lot of scaremongering about China coming into Australia. Discussion about how China is going to take over Africa and U.S. is now trying to come into Africa to counter that. What, what's happening with that sort of political international forces uh, realigning themselves? The ANC government has got a very strong and close relationship with the Republic of the People's Republic of China. On an annual basis, several government delegations on both sides are visiting. South Africa has also engaged with China, uh, Russia. India and Brazil, and they formed the group of BRICS countries. That's right. They had a uh, conference recently. As somewhat Correct. of an alternative yes. uh, to the group of eight. Uh, but the basis for that is uh, capitalist growth. Can, mm. can, can these five countries offer a different pole mm. uh, for capitalists of those countries? And, and, it, and was, it was actually... Um, Against WTO, wasn't it? It's a not quite. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say against, because it's not quite an alternative. But I think it's an effort to create some pool that's an alternative that that's uh, not necessarily being dominated by North America and and Western Europe. Mm. But it does not necessarily then put forward a different economic system. So, for example, China's interest is to get cheap coal, get cheap steel, yes, cheap <laughs> iron, and, and cheap labor. Uh, South Africa and other African countries then offer uh, uh, easy access to these raw materials. Uh, and of course, uh, once the, the raw materials have been used to manufacture goods, perhaps Brazil and Russia could be important markets for China. Similarly, India also has a similar interest to access uh, similar resources. Uh, the African governments in general, not just South Africa, have, have failed to use, uh, to build collective power such that they can actually engage China differently. Mm. Uh, China claims that 
they could have offered better deals if they were engaged differently by African governments. And look, the older imperialist interests of uh, the United States and Western Europe are, are always present. Of course, China, as a big economy, uh, will have interest in acquiring resources and raw materials, like they do too. Uh, on, the, on the side of Europe, you've seen a move to impose bilateral economic and trade agreements on individual countries in ways that make regional integration impossible. So Swaziland was on the verge of signing one such bilateral trade agreement, which would have been punitive to the rest of the 14 countries in southern Africa. The United States has, 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 has continued to want to protect its interests through the African Growth and Opportunities Act, which again is... It sounds nice, but actually worsens the trade conditions for these countries. The United States has also been very naked, uh, with its uh, naked and quite uh, aggressive with its military agenda hmm. in East Africa, in, in North Africa. Yes. But also, very quietly, they have put up a military base in Botswana, part of Africom. Very close, very yes. close yeah. So this, it's, it, it, Africa is yet again uh, competing or stamping ground for different imperialist interests, North America, Western Europe, and China, and to an extent, India. Finally, what I'd like to ask is if you could um, tell us about the Congress, the launch that's coming up of the United Front that you are a spokesperson for. The United Front will bring together about 500 organizations representing uh, different social forces of the oppressed and, and the exploited, workers, the unemployed, rural women, and so on. Uh, the launch was going to take place in April, but we've decided uh, in response to massive numbers of organizations saying they require more time uh, to discuss the political program of the United Front. The launch will now take place in June. Uh, the date is significant in June. 26th June will be the first day of that conference. 26th June in 1955 was the day in which the Freedom Charter was adopted. So we're using that very, very significantly. Good one. Yeah, mm -hmm. But also the date we had chosen in April, 27th April, uh, is the day we got our freedom from our date. Mm -hmm. So we are actually going to use that day too in a very powerful political way. Normally, uh, politicians stand up on that day mm -hmm. to mouth off platitudes, yes. uh, to rallies and to other mass events. So what we will do on that day is to organize 25 people's assemblies in South Africa, whereby we're going to say to the people, they must talk about the South Africa they want and what action they are going to take to achieve that South Africa and what the, the Congress of the United Front must achieve. So it's, it's a very exciting moment mm. uh, that, that we're going through uh, in building this, mass, this new mass space force that has the possibility to, to reclaim South Africa in a significant way. But also importantly, is the other process NUMSA is leading to explore a political party of the working class committed to socialism. As part of the process, NUMSA is convening in April a conference on socialism, which, according uh, to its, uh, its statements, should be an annual conference uh, until there's a clear emergence of a workers' party. Mm. So th this is an exciting moment Very exciting. for progressive and left forces in South Africa. Mm. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for being available to 3CR. Thank you very much for hosting me. The influence of China, um, in Australia at least, there's been a lot of scaremongering about China coming into Australia. 
and you know that's been a traditional thing in the old days. They used to call it the Yellow Peril, you know, or China's going to come and Japan's going to come and invade Australia. But currently, that sort of sentiment is hovering around Africa. What what's happening with that sort of political international forces uh, realigning themselves? The ANC government has got a very strong and close relationship with the Republic of the People's Republic of China. Um, on an annual basis, several government delegations on both sides are visiting. Um, South Africa has also engaged with China, uh, Russia, India, and Brazil, and they formed the group of BRICS countries. That's right. They had a uh, conference recently. As somewhat Correct. of an alternative yes. uh, to the group of eight. Uh, but the basis for that is uh, capitalist growth. Can mm. can can these five countries uh, offer a different pole uh, mm. for capitalists of those countries? And, and, it and was it was actually um, against the WTO, wasn't it? It's not quite. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say against because it's not quite an alternative. But I think it's an effort to create some pole. Mm. That's an alternative. That's 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 uh, not necessarily being dominated by North America and and Western Europe, mm. but it does not necessarily then put forward a different economic system. That's uh, yes, uh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, for example, China's interest is to get cheap coal, get cheap steel, yes, cheap iron. So South Africa <laughs> cheap and, everything. And, and other Africa and and, and, and cheap labor. Uh, South Africa and other African countries then offer uh, uh, easy access to these raw materials. Uh, and of course, uh, once the, the raw materials have been used to manufacture goods, perhaps Brazil and Russia could be important markets for China. Similarly, India also has a similar interest to access uh, similar resources. Uh, the African governments in general, not just South Africa, have have failed to use, uh, to build collective power such that they can actually engage China differently. Mm. Uh, China claims that they could have offered better deals if they were engaged differently mm. by, by African governments. Mm. Uh, look, the older imperialist interests of uh, the United States and Western Europe are, are always present. I think on their part, it's racist to, to, to refer to the yellow peril. Of course, China as a big economy yes. uh, will have interest in acquiring resources and raw materials like they do too. Mm. Um, uh, on, on, the, on the side of, 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 of Europe, you've seen a move to impose bilateral economic and trade agreements on individual countries. Yes, in plenty way, of them. Exactly. In ways that make regional integration impossible. Yes. So... Swaziland was on the verge of signing one such bilateral trade agreement, which would have be, been punitive to the rest of the 14 countries in southern Africa. The United States has, 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 has continued to want to protect its interests through the African Growth and Opportunities Act, which again is, 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 it sounds nice, but actually worsens the trade conditions for, 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 for these countries. The United States has also been very naked uh, with its uh, naked and quite uh, aggressive with its military agenda hmm. in East Africa, in, in North Africa. Yes. But also very quietly, they have put up a military base in Botswana uh, as, part, as, part, as, as part of AFRICOM. Very close. Very yes. close yeah. So this, it's, it, it, Africa is yet again uh, competing or stamping ground for different imperialist interests, North America, Western Europe, and China, and to an extent, India.
Mm. Okay, so finally what I'd like um, to ask is if you could um, tell us about the Congress, the launch that's coming up of the United Front that you are a spokesperson for. The United Front will bring together about 500 organizations representing uh, different social forces of the oppressed and, and the exploited workers, the unemployed, rural women, and so on. Uh, the launch was going to take place in April, but we've decided uh, in response to massive numbers of organizations saying they require more time uh, to discuss the political program of the United Front. The launch will now take place in June. And the date is significant in June, 26th June, will be the first day of that conference. 26th June in 1955 was the day in which the Freedom Charter was adopted. Also, the date we had chosen in April, 27th April, uh, is the day we got our freedom from apartheid. So we are actually going to use that day to in a very powerful political way. Normally, uh, politicians stand up on that day to mouth off platitudes, uh, to rallies and to other mass events. So what we will do on that day is to organize 25 people's assemblies in South Africa, whereby we're going to say to the people, they must talk about the South Africa they want and what action they are going to take to achieve that South Africa and what the the Congress of the United Front must achieve. So it's a very exciting moment Mm -hmm. uh, that that we're going through Mm -hmm. uh, in building this this new mass-based force that has the possibility to to reclaim South Africa in a significant way. But also importantly is the other process NUMSA is leading to explore a political party of the working class committed to socialism. As part of the process, NUMSA is convening in April a conference on socialism, which according uh, to its uh, its statements should be an annual conference uh, until there's a clear emergence of a workers' party. So this is an exciting moment for progressive and left forces in South Africa. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for being available to 3CR. Thank you very much for hosting me. That was Masibuku Kanyiso Yahar, who is the executive director of a community control organization of 13 villages in the Amathol district in South Africa. He's a research associate with the University of Cape Town, and his research involves rights of women to land, rural governance, and traditional leaders. Yaha is also the founder of and spokesperson of the Democratic Left that's starting to gather momentum in South Africa. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and streaming live on the, on the web. Now we go to Marcus. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio, we go up to Victoria's far northwest corner. I am the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington, and on today's edition I am joined by the Secretary of the Sunraiser Trades and Labor Council, Adam Allgate. Okay, and welcome to today's program of Rank and File Radio. Adam, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you're the leader of the Sunraiser Trades and Labor Council, Adam, uh, which has recently been uh, resurrected, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I'm the president of the okay. Trade, Trades and Labor Council. Um, so obviously we have a secretary as well. Okay, and what does the uh, role of the president entail? Okay, so look, we, we take a lot of, we deal with a lot of issues in regards to workers okay. around the region, um, all sorts of different matters, um, and uh, yeah, actively help those workers through their issues. Okay, and it's the Sunraiser region that the uh, organisation covers. Um, can you just describe to the listeners uh, exactly 
what areas that region takes in? Yeah, so we look after uh, areas of uh, Robin Vale, Orion, probably sort of on the outer perimeters of, of where we okay. um, deal with, but um, the majority of it is uh, Mildura, Red Cliffs, Irene Pool, um, and the Dead and Bronco Golgol, Wentworth, all that sort of area. Okay, does that uh, area deal with many uh, union members? Yeah, there's quite a few unions involved okay. uh, in the area. Okay, and uh, prior to the reformation of the Trades and Labor Council, uh, was there a long history of an organised uh, workers' movement up in the Sun Raja? Uh, look, there is a long history. Um, look, it'd be always great to have a lot more of this. Okay. Um, but there uh, certainly has been you know, quite a fair amount of history. At the moment, we... Um, seem to be, uh, well, we're actually getting a lot of lot more people involved and we've had our uh, March 4 rally here locally um, in support of the uh, nationwide protest. So that was quite a, a good event to, to start to see um, the workers around the region mobilising um, and dealing with some of the very important issues. OK. Is that a campaign the uh, Trades Hall up there has engaged in to get more people uh, active and recruit them into their uh, unions up in that region? Um, I think nationally, I'm not quite sure which particular um, trades hall initiated it, but um, it was done in every major capital city. Okay. Um, and we had quite a bit of interest in the local area, um, but given we're six hours away from, from Melbourne, um, there was only a few people that uh, had the opportunity to get there for the big rally, so we decided that we would hold one here. Um, Okay, and as well as being the, the president of the Trades and Labor Council, uh, you're also a local uh, uh, union organiser up there? Yeah, that's correct. I'm the organiser for the AWU, uh, for the northwest of Victoria. Okay. What industries does that union cover up in that area? Sure. We're, um, we cover quite a lot of wineries, um, a lot of uh, agriculture, horticulture, okay. um, some factories, uh, very, very diverse. Okay, what other industries are workers placed in in the Sunraysia region? Um, there's a lot of um, fruit growing in the area. Um, the orange industry, wine industry, almond industry. So there's, um, they, they tend to take up a, a fairly large portion that we deal with. Okay. Um, and what issues are the workers facing up in that region? Is the issue of, uh, for example, fruit pickers um, being exploited through the uh, 457 visa arrangement, has that been an issue the unions have had to deal with up, up around Mildura? Yeah, look, that, that is um, something that we've been looking into. seems to be quite a, a difficult um, problem to, to uh, find information about. Um, certainly, 
yeah, it seems mostly that that, that particular situation is more for the itinerant workers that are, um, that are sort of here for a short period of time and move on. So it tends to be quite a difficult situation to get those workers to uh, come forward with information as they move on quite quickly. Um, but it's certainly something that we're working with um, with the AWU and also with the Trades and Labor Council um, on, on a regular basis trying to you know, develop statements with some of these workers um, in order to try and rectify these problems. Okay, is the, one of the difficulties faced at these uh, workers maybe uh, students or travellers from uh, other countries who face uh, language uh, barriers? Definitely, that is a problem. Um, we do have that as an issue, but it's also probably because they uh, because they move so quickly, they come for a few weeks, and if there's issues, they tend to, to um, make the decision to move on um, to to somewhere else. So it, it becomes a, a very difficult situation to be able to get in contact with those workers to to uh, deal with the matters. Okay, and at the same time as workers are being exploited, uh, farmers too all over the country are being attacked by uh, Coles and Woolworths, so we're seeing uh, workers and farmers both coming under attack. Um, is there alliances being made between these uh, two groups, between the, the workers and the farmers? Um, look, I mean, I really don't know a great deal. I believe that the VFF is probably doing some uh, work in regard to that. Um, obviously our organisations are there to support the workers yep. and, and, and deal with any issues that arise in that um, area. Um, I do certainly understand the pressures that these large companies are putting on um, you know, on these, these farmers and it's uh, probably not a great thing. Yeah, when we see the pressures these uh, national corporations place on workers um, and the small businesses is where workers and small business have uh, probably got more in common and probably maybe need to work together against these uh, large, greedy corporations who are attempting to crush both the workers and these uh, small farmers. Yeah, sure. Like, um, look, it would be would be something that um, we probably should be looking into a little more. Um, there has been some some discussions, but um, probably not a not a bad suggestion that we should uh, look at maybe having a few more discussions around that. Yeah, what, what's the state governments? Uh, to the Sunraysia region been? I mean, is it, is it a forgotten part of Victoria, would you say? Well, we've actually had quite a few ministers um, to since the uh, change in, in the state government. We've had a lot of ministers uh, in our area recently okay. coming to visit. Um, there's been quite a, a number of announcements for the, for the area. So um, I would say that, you know, at, at this present time with this, um, this government, they seem to be you know, quite in contact with the area. Okay, is there uh, any issues that the Labor Council uh, plans to build campaigns around or against? Sure, so obviously the um, itinerant worker and the exploitation of workers that, 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 that happens, you know, around this area and many other areas across the country um, is something that we're looking to deal with. I, I'd say that the you know, majority vast majority of, of the employers out there aren't doing this and it's only a few that that are, are giving the region you know a bad name okay so yeah but we've got to try and knuckle down and and uh get those statements from those people and deal with these issues of these few that are are doing this
Okay, and as you said before, you're uh, in the AWU, the Australian Workers' Union, uh, a very old union which was born out of uh, the Shearers' strike in 1891, fighting history there in that union, which uh, yeah, the lessons should be drawn on, would you say? Yeah, look, there, there certainly is. Um, and, you know, dealing in the more rural areas um, seems to be something we've always maintained um, compared to a lot of other unions. So okay. I'm quite proud of that, being a being a local in the region, that um, we do engage in, in those more rural areas um, in order to um, give those services to help protect workers in those areas. OK, uh, thanks for joining us today on Community Radio 3CR. Adam, uh, who's joined us from Mildura in the Sunraysian region of Victoria. And that was Adam Allgate from the Sunraysia Trades and Labor Council. Next we'll hear some of the audio from the Fight for Your Rights rally on March the 4th in Mildura. Firefighters, nurses and members of the Australian Workers' Union join forces to protest at the Abbott government's inquiry into rights at work, which they say is an attempt to cut penalty rates and abolish the minimum wage. We've got uh, the same common enemy as such here, our coalition. The Australian Nurses and Midwifery Federation says cuts to penalty rates would be devastating. We work weekends, we have to provide an emergency service there all the time, whether you're in the ED department or whether you're on the wards as well. Um, you've got to be compensated somehow to actually miss that time with your family. Wages of people are being eroded away and the poor are getting poorer and the rich are getting richer. The protesters say the federal member for Mali needs to stand up for the region's workers. Andrew Rhodes mostly had a profile in the area, but whether or not he's connected to what people are actually, uh, you know, what their real message is, I'm not sure whether he's hearing that. Andrew Broad was aware of the rally, but was in Parliament in Canberra. And that's all we have this morning on Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 AM. I'm the presenter of the program, Marcus Harrington. You can find more about the show at our Facebook page, Rank and File Radio, or you can send us an email at rankandfileradio3cr at gmail.com. That was Marcus Harrington, as you heard. Um, you're listening to Soya to Breakfast on 3CR. Good morning, Kevin. Morning, Ali. How are you? I'm good. Should I say happy Easter to you or you don't celebrate Easter? Oh, no, I certainly do. In fact, the week that was celebrated this morning, and um, we certainly celebrate Easter very much. The dear baby Jesus, my word, yes, yes. And off you go. All yours. Okay, a week solidarity, Bricky team, Lister, when the, well, there's one, one, one member of the team this morning, I think, Lister, when the, the world would be a better place if the riffraff would see the world as their caring employers see the world. Caring employers who understand there is no such thing as class struggle. Poor caring employers being crucified by the myopic evil. And if evil countries could practice the love and peace that Christian religion brings to the world, evil countries that are crucifying the peace-loving. Example, as the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy and peace, nuclear-armed nations attempt to prevent non-peace-loving, non-liberty, freedom and democracy-loving evil Iran from developing nuclear weapons, peace-loving Zion has attacked any deal with evil Iran. The only way to deal with evil Iran is to nuke it off the planet, peace-loving Zion declared. Uh, So you're admitting you have nuclear weapons. We are neither confirming nor denying 
Notice the nuclear-armed lovers of are so devoted to their love of peace they are prepared to travel all over the world, said train killers all over the world, to bring peace to the world, to non-peace lovers, to others. And that they love peace is obvious because none of the peace-loving nuclear-armed lot need to be invaded by someone else's train killers. Back here, economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, launched this discussion paper on tax, premised on his assertion that True Blue Aussie is too heavily reliant on company and personal income taxes. It's made worse, he went on, because we all know most companies don't pay any. Oh, what? They exist outside the taxation system. Oh, no, no, of course not. They claim all sorts of concessions and subsidies and grants and corporate welfare are paid by, uh, by those who can't avoid personal income tax, by the workers who are crucifying their caring employers. There is a proposition in the discussion paper, this is true, that small business pay no tax at all. See, that way they could invest that saving in the business and employ more workers who would then pay the taxes their caring employers don't pay. What a smart idea, because they'd never dream of just stuffing the tax windfall in their back kick. After all, they tell us their sole raison d'etre is to provide jobs for the undeserving. Interesting the different perspectives on the same issue, in this case the remote possibility that superannuation tax handouts to the super rich may be affected. Don't hold your breath, I say, but, but the Capitalist Review P1, generous super breaks may go. Coverage of same P2, Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, oldies tax target reflects their respective demographic, demographic targets, I suggest. Tax reform, they call it, and thankfully all the sundry chambers of profits and industry profits bodies who don't pay any tax have all sorts of wonderful ideas to offer on who should pay. They're so helpful, aren't they, when the national interest is up for discussion? Well, well they know what the national interest is. And for the fan of the segment, great excitement, celebrity news. But sadly, we've had a dearth of the information we so yearn about our dear little Paris, uh, apart from her big feet. But a report in that great source of celebrity news, Lord Rupert's MX on celebrity responses to media questions, will dedicate to Paris's great powers of thinking, which we so appreciate. Christina Aguilera. So where's the Cannes Film Festival being held this year? Obviously, can't work it out. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think gay marriage is something that should be between a man and a woman. Alternatively, he could just eradicate the problem with the Kalishnikov. Jessica Simpson. Is this chicken what I have or is this fish? I, I know it's tuna, but it says chicken of the sea. No idea why she's a celebrity, but let's hope it's not for her culinary skills. At least Sylvester Stallone was probably tongue-in-cheek. At least we hope so. The only happy artist is a dead artist, because only then you can change. Well, yes, you, you decompose. But anyway, after I die, he said, I'll probably come back as a paintbrush. <laughs> well, it's odds on to be a better actor. Although, if it's really Sylvester, but the best to last, that champion of world philosophy, Brit, Britney Spears. I've never really wanted to go to Japan, simply because I don't like eating fish. Okay, so far, so good. And I know that's very popular out there in Africa. <laughs> well, they're much the same, easy to get them mixed up, although I, I can't see her travel guide being a bestseller. 
Wonder what dear little Paris would make of all that. Probably wonder what we're talking about. I bet she knows Paris is in Texas. That was an almost Paris-free celebrity news. Poor Lord Rupert had so much news like cricket and fashion, he couldn't even squeeze in a line about thousands marching to support refugees and asylum seekers. Well, he only reports real news. Hope he can find room for the Anzac Day marches. Given the hardline socialist principles maintained by the Socialist Party, it's hard to imagine what someone would have to do to get expelled. Well, apart from expressing concern about class struggle or the lot of the victims of class struggle, but there's, there's no risk of that. So we've got to feel sorry for our old mate, the former minister for just love those resource profits, Martin Cliché, now a spokesperson for the Resource Profits Association. The Socialist Party wants to expel him. Just just because he turned up in caring business class party election ads in NSW suggesting the Socialist Party's odd criticism of the resource profits industry, like a bit of pollution and destroying the environment and privatisation mightn't bring all the cornucopia of riches the community has promised, was misinformation. A band of a day, a bold lie. We can only imagine how Marty's sense of decency in the resource profits industry he works for would be abraded by misinformation and bald lies. Bald, appropriate use reminds us of the landscape after the resource lot have taken their resources and made off with the profits. But Marty has a watertight defence in my opinion. Well, apart from the fact he no longer gets his income from the evil trade union movement or as a rabid socialist on the plush seats, well, apart from his generous parliamentary pension, and he knows where his bread and butter's coming from, but no, watertight. He didn't know it wasn't the Socialist Party, he just couldn't tell the difference. Suspect, off with their heads, public execution is about to be revived in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country. After all, treason is still on the books as a capital crime, and I can't think of a worst example of treason. Staff at Windsor Castle are threatening industrial action just because they get lousy pay and are expected to carry out all sorts of unpaid duties over and above. For goodness sake, just working for us should be enough. It's bloody selfish to expect to be paid at all. Any wonder Her Most Gracious Majesty wants nothing to do with the working class. It's the ingratitude that hurts. This ungrateful riffraff carries on as if there was still a class system in this country. These wretches are crucifying me. A foot person, get here. Poor Her Most Gracious. And that neutral economic advisor, Ian Harper in heaven, delivered his unbiased report on how the economy can work better for all of us. A major recommendation being that fines for union secondary boycotts be increased from a crippling 750,000 to a mere 10 million. Real figure. We have to prevent caring employers being crucified by evil unions and workers who continue to act as if there is still class struggle, class warfare in this country. The caring employers who so love their ingrate bludgers with great Christian love realised long ago that we are all equal. Caring employer and ingrate worker. 
Now we have to listen to Ian, especially at this time of year, because when he was appointed to determine the annual minimum wage uh, decrease by the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo in the last even darker ages, he told us he sought guidance from the dear baby Jesus. So clearly the dear baby Jesus must realise it's good for the lowest of the low-paid riffraff in this classless society to enjoy the benefits of a wage cut. So the dear baby... Well, until tomorrow, it's the dead baby Jesus, but the dear baby must also know it's good that evil unions be hit with $10 million fines for refusing to see this is a classless society. And the Chamber of Profits submission to the Productivity Kanger inquiry into non-class relations says awards must be abolished. Unions have no place in negotiations between caring employers and their ingrate workers, and wages must be reduced in the interests of those ingrates. This is the sensible, sensible centre because the balance has swung too far toward the evil unions. The last thing we want is a return to work choices. But the workers are crucifying their caring employers, Ian being neutral said. The workers are crucifying us, the caring employers said. Then how come I can see it's the, the workers up there on the cross? They have to learn to stop crucifying us, to realise we are all equal. Um, any neutral night or on one side or other comment, Ian? Amen! Jesus, when we hear those voices of reason, let's hope the workers on the cross who are crucifying them don't rise up. Finally, notice Horrigen Energy copped a $2 million fine over a few questionable tactics by its marketing firm signing up customers. It's our duty to ensure, Horrigen said, that anyone who represents us reflects our behaviours and values. <laughs> I would have thought they did. Good morning. Ah, thank you very much, Kevin, and good thank morning. You. Okay, Layla, thanks a lot. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Bye. See you. And that was Uncle Kevin. Um, next, we have... Um, an interview with uh, Madeline Rees, who is um, a member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And she's also the, the Secretary of the Office of the High Commission for the Human, of Human Rights at the UN. She is a holder of OBE, and she's a British lawyer. Now, Madeline wrote an article on um, what happened in Sweden. The foreign minister for Sweden, Margot Wallström, made a decision not to sell arms to Saudi Arabia very recently, and Madeleine has rec uh, described that as feminist foreign policy. So I interviewed her on the basis of that article. Here we go. Welcome to 3CR, Madeleine. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and um, I wanted to discuss the article you wrote, which is uh, titled, This is What a Feminist Foreign Policy Looks Like. And I just wonder if you mm -hmm. could explain what you mean by feminist foreign policy for a start. Well, how many hours have you got? Because there's so many different elements to foreign policy. <laughs> Clearly, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to try and do the soundbite elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, what I think Margaret Wilson has been trying to do, and what it should mean in real life, is to look at what impact foreign policy has on countries 
or on the countries in which, within which you are engaging. So you need to be looking at, you know, essentially and absolutely forefront are the human rights elements within that country. Are human rights being respected and upheld by the state and protected by the state? Is what's going on there something which is part of a foreign policy which can then influence what happens in that country. So, for example, if you are selling weapons, which, you know, obviously we're fundamentally opposed to in any case, you must look at whether that government is using those weapons in a way which prevents the full enjoyment of human rights. Are they likely to be used to commit crimes against humanity? Are they likely to be used in a way which has a gendered dimension, as in, are they used to perpetuate power dynamics within the family, for example, which of course the gun ownership always does that. You know, it's always the man who has the gun, and that then has an influence on who has power within families, that has an impact on political economy, and so on and so forth. So it's really looking at, it's doing a gender analysis of what is happening from a human rights perspective in countries within which you are engaging, and then what the policy, the trading policies, the uh, engagement policies of your country should look like that in order to make sure that you are not perpetuating structures of power which discriminate. That would be the very short. Essentially what we're looking at is, is, is not just you know, business as usual. It yeah. is about a radical transformation of how we do business. And that's not to say you know, we want the revolution, because the revolution already happened. All that happened is we did not implement it. And this, I think this is where my frustration kicks in. Um, as I think per the article, because we have all the laws in place as to what we should be doing. We just don't implement. And what Margaret Wilson kicked off, I think, the, the whole discussions by doing, is for the first time a foreign minister actually standing up and saying, actually, wait a minute, we're all calling the same thing the same thing, you know, the, yeah. the practice of flogging and beheadings and, you know, all those sorts of things as being medieval. Um, and yet, if you do it publicly and you're a foreign minister and you actually do something about it, then suddenly it becomes the wrong thing to have done. Which, of course, is a matter of international law analysis wrong. Yes, it's very interesting because you've written that the, Europeans, um, the European press did a little bit on it and there was nothing at all in the U.S. But in Sweden, the papers have now started to debate the issue. The difficult part is when women who are in, in positions like Margot Wallström is then being criticised for what she did, um, as you said. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's there, it's, it's, it's written writing. So she was just implementing what... We all agree it's the right thing to do. Yes, exa exactly the point. And what we saw as a response was, act was, was the sort of military-industrial complex coming down around her head. You know, that was, it was this of the arms companies in Sweden. It was those, the H&M, the Saabs, the, um, all of those who yes. have trading agreements in the Middle East who were afraid that they were then going to lose all of that because of the stance she'd taken over the protection of human rights. It's indicative of where power lies. Yeah, the difficulty is when you're trying to implement something like this, which you, you call the feminist foreign policy, you're doing it within a patriarchal system. And exactly. hence she is um, really being um, attacked by that patriarchal, the representatives of that patriarchal system. And in fact, today there was an article out, um, which I thought, perfect. The um, U.S. has resumed air shipments to Egypt so, oh, sure yes. yes, so it's a very difficult uh, situation, even though we have this and you, you correctly promote it. No other media is really promoting it. There's no news in Australia about it. The battle is huge, isn't it? It is, and I think that this, this issue, has, what Margaret Wilson did and the, the backlash there has been, is indicative of the, the way in which patriarchy seeks to protect itself. 
um, and what you just mentioned, the arms sales, and what is going on in Yemen is just absolutely to point on how badly we have let our system get out of control. If you think of, of, of I mean, just even the, just the, the logic of what should happen around the arms sales to Egypt and Yemen now, if it were done from a feminist foreign policy perspective, there would have to be an immediate arms embargo mm. on the entire region because clearly those are being used to bolster up regimes which violate human rights. So as a matter of the arms trade treaty itself, which is international law, um, states have to look at the, you know, the record on human rights, humanitarian law, and gender-based violence. They have to. Um, and then regulate the sale of those arms in accordance. When you've got a full-on conflict, as you have in Yemen now, and you have an external actor, as in Saudi, who is doing them, perpetrating the acts of violence, there's a, it's incumbent on all the member states of the international community, particularly those who have a geographic proximity, particularly those who have military, economic, or political sway with the various governments involved, they have to use that in order to prevent crimes against humanity taking place, to prevent violations of human rights, and to prevent the sale and continued sale of arms to those areas. Are they doing it? Not at all. On mm. the contrary. And you know, the United Nations is, is definitely silent on this. Um, and you, that's before we even questioned the legitimacy of the intervention in the first place. So you know, what you've ended up with is the complete antithesis of what a feminist foreign policy would look like, a, the complete antithesis of, antithesis of upholding international law and the obligations that they've all, which they are all supposed to be up, uh, to upholding. And we get you know, what is essentially sort of decimation of civilian populations as a result. Hmm. Not what we should be looking at, not what we should be doing. Yes, but the, the common cry is, um, is against, for example, in this instance, against Swedish interests. Exactly what they mean is, is up for grabs. And every country uses it. For example, Australia sends troops to Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., etc., and it's always it's, it's in the interest of Australia. I have never been able to work out what does that actually mean. Yeah, exactly. What's the interest of a nation state? Surely it is the interest of the people in that state. We should dump this idea of the interest of the state because the state is representative of that horrific capitalist free yes. market or religious, religiously dominated elite. You know, whichever country we're talking about, it's not we the people. You know, it is, it is the military industrial complex plus. And what we end up with as a result of that is the nation state being used, you know, the idea of citizenship and, and nationalism being abused in order to perpetrate those interests. Because, you know, I do not believe for one minute that all those Syrians getting slaughtered want the continuation of the war. No, they didn't want it in the first place. It was a few, a few thousands who did, and now look what we've got. It's the same in every single conflict, and we don't listen to the voices of the real people. We'd go with what you're just saying. So it's in the interest of the state to do this. It's in, our, in the interest of our states to engage. It's in the interest of the United States right now to arm and rearm Egypt. Why? Mm. This supposed war on terrorism, which has just perpetrated more war and more conflict. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's just about interests that we, they're not our interests. You know, the, the value of H&M or Saab, or that's not in our interest. What is of interest to us is whether or not we can promote human rights and then have reciprocity and a peaceful way of doing business and re-engaging with the rest of the world. Um, what we do right now doesn't do that. There are some companies, and I think this is possibly one of the, the we hope, the next ways forward, the way that citizens can actually exert influence is through who we choose to do our business with. 
And the one thing that gives me hope is that there are companies now who want to and do engage on human rights assessments because they don't want to engage in violations. Um, what they need to, they want to respect yes. human rights. Mm-hmm. And if we go with them, that's where the market is. The fact that they want to do that shows that they think the market wants them to do that and the market is us. So we have to regulate our conduct in respect of that and we have to actually relate to our democratically elected governments to represent us and not represent the interests of those vested interests that right now are the ones who are, who are dominating the political discourse. Hmm. The, the other question I want to put to you is, you have been um, a great champion of exposing the gaps, I guess, with what United Nations is doing around the world. And your experience in um, Serbia and Herzegovina um, is a classic example of that. But you also question that the United Nations is ostensibly the world's largest peace organization. And yet the very United Nations itself is um, at a loss to do anything about what's going on, the abuses that we, we just talked about. How do you reconcile, you know, you work with you, you, your organization, the, the WILPF, like an NGO within the, the, the UN, from what I understand. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. How does that work for you? Um, well, we're, we're sort of like on the outside. We, we've got the status within the UN, so we, you know, we get entrance, we can have access. Um, but basically what we have is a grassroots social movement, which is, is the oldest peace organization in the world. And what we do is we try to get information, what we do, get grassroots information, what's really happening, particularly in women's lives, and try to translate that into what, you know, what proper policy and international responses should be, national responses and international responses, to ensure that the right policies are followed. Again, going back to us about particularly human rights and non-discrimination. That's what we do, um, and in multiple different ways. What it means for us right now is complete and utter frustration. Yes, I can understand. <laughs> because, I mean, because we've, we've sort of come up against this monolithic block that is now the United Nations. Hmm. Um, because they are stuck. Um, we work very closely with, with members of the Human Rights Council and, you know, as individuals, people are amazing, as you can expect. You know, people are people wherever you go, no matter what position they hold, and they want to do the right thing. But they are as stuck within a system as are we. And to try and get that system to change is is you know absolutely what we need to be working on but what we have right now is a security council which is made up of the permanent five who as we know cannot agree on anything will not agree on anything and seem to have forgotten that you know they're not there for state interest Mm. they are there to broker international peace and security Mm. um they don't and so what you end up with is is geopolitical arguments being worked out in the security council you know besting the next one so there's, there's, we can't look to the Security Council to look after our interests, and that is what is wrong. That is what is fundamentally wrong. And, of course, they control it, so they're not going to vote for a change anytime soon. Yes, and Why the, would they give up power? Exactly right. And that goes for the capitalists around the world, too, who really will not give up power. And that's our biggest it, problem. Yeah, and the, 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 it's all manifested through the, the five permanent members. And, and, then, and then this struggle to be, for others to be part of the Security Council, this is the debate with Sweden now. You know, Margaret Wilson has prejudiced Sweden's possibility of becoming part of the Security Council. If that is true, then that is a serious problem because she has to say, all she's done is she stood up for international law, which the Security Council would do. Because she's done that, they're saying Sweden shouldn't have a role in the Security Council. That shows how bad it's become. The other factor is that other states want to be members of the Security Council, like the Netherlands. They're also in competition. 
Well, let's hope the Netherlands support the Mary Rock, the, the Margaret Wallström approach and say we want to be part of the Security Council, but in order to champion human rights and real security, not your constant wars on terrorism or in the interest of national security. No. But do you think the Netherlands will do that? I don't know. If they ever listen to this program, maybe we could call them to do so. We are trying to lobby. <laughs> but they should. Because this is the thing. It, it, wouldn't it be, you know, I dream, um, but wouldn't it be wonderful if all the states that have, you know, that are engaging say, actually, you know, Margaret Watson is right. Sweden's got a good foreign policy. We should be doing the same. Very discreetly, Germany stopped arms sales to Saudi Arabia. They probably wouldn't welcome the fact that I mentioned that. But they did because they believe they have obligations under the arms trade treaty. I don't know if that was the rationale behind it, but it's, it seems as if that was what they're doing. And they put into place regulation for whom they could sell arms to and decided Saudi didn't meet the criteria. And as I say, I don't know if that's, that is exactly what they did, but that's what, that's what the outcome was. So other states should be doing the same. If everybody did it, then Saudi, for example, would not have anywhere to buy its arms from. And then we could have a different discussion about Saudi's intervention in Yemen. But then you're leaving out other countries like Afghanistan, Pakistan, even India for that matter, and all the other Middle Eastern countries that are at war. I mean, there's a history to these countries being at war, and you know, it's a long history. We don't have time to go into that at the moment in this interview. But it's not just Saudi, though. That every country, there are arms sales happening, whether it's England or, or France or whatever, whatever other country, they're doing it. No, you're absolutely right. This, this is the problem. It's being seen as one of the biggest money earners in the world because the one, and the, but the problem is, and this is something I think that we need to understand, it is not sustainable. It is only sustainable if there is constant conflict because you have to keep using them. Um, if you don't use the weapons, then no one's going to buy them. Yes. You might get to update every now and then. Yes. But are, you know, with the arms dealers, you get the little stamp on saying tried and tested in Afghanistan. or you know, yes. and, and this is what sells. Mm -hmm. And so what we have is, is arms dealers needing conflict. So they are actually a driver of conflict, which is self-evident. But mm -hmm. when you think of people thinking, well, you know, if we don't sell arms, somebody else is going to sell arms. Well, it's, it's fine if you're exporting over there because you don't actually see the, what the consequences of what those weapons do. And I think if most people saw the consequences of what those weapons do, they would not want to build an economy on a system of destruction. It is unsustainable. It, you know, other, other goods can be traded which do not destroy the planet, destroy people and you know, cause international instability at a level which I think is more frightening than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, to be honest. Yes, it's absolutely at a crisis at the moment, isn't it? It's this constant conflict around us all the time. All you see is destruction. And, it's and what we do, we flood more guns into where that destruction is. I mean, this is just you know, in, in Nigeria, for example. And in Nigeria, DRC, we've got very strong sections in, in both countries. And they keep saying all the time, is, is if you stopped flooding our countries with guns, we could have a serious conversation about ending the sorts of violence that we see. Absolutely. But you don't. Yep. You don't. You know, and on it goes. Yes. On, on the question of a campaign against war, aggression, conflict, deaths and everything, there's a group called Women in Black in Europe. Um, I just wondered if you know much about them and the activities and what your opinions of, of what, what they've been able to achieve. 
They've, I mean, they've been around for a long time. I remember the first time, actually, I, I saw them in action, and it was incredibly moving. Um, I mean, I knew of them, but I'd never met, um, met them en masse. And I was at the Srebrenica Memorial, um, you know, the, on, in July the 9th to 11th for the, um, the genocide that took place yes. in Srebrenica. And there was this, this sort of huge place where people could gather and mourn, and there was a fence, and on the other side there was a bank. And there were all these women gathered in the corner, and they unfurled just at the beginning of the whole thing, or just before it started, they unfurled a banner, which in Serbian apologized for the genocide and spoke of solidarity amongst those who had suffered conflict. And the Bosniaks on the other side just turned to them and they applauded. And it was just one of those beautiful moments of reconciliation that I think only strong women, committed women, could have done. And the work they have done, I know in Belgrade, has, has caused them you know, some considerable personal risk and always, always been having their vigils to oppose war, to oppose conflict, to speak for reconciliation. I mean, they've done amazing work. And they do now have, you know, engaged men as well who are actually working with them. And it's something that, you know, they're not, say, they're not just there, they're all over the place. Um, it, is, it is another movement. And WILF is very closely affiliated with them through our sections. And many women who are members of WILF are also members of Women in Black. I think we are getting it because there are so many of us. I mean, this is the most brilliant thing. I mean, my work is, is not easy because you know, we're constantly working with women in war zones. Um, but what I find inspiring is that in every single conflict, you meet the most incredible women. You know, one, women who have been ordinary one day and then the conflict brings them to become these extraordinary individuals. I mean, they probably were before, but they just didn't have, we would never have met them. They would never have done what they do. You know, people who are just regular architects who now, are working, running, you know, working on trafficking in Iraq and providing protection for women fleeing ISIS. I mean, just incredible work. Um, intelligent, engaged, funny. You know, it's it's a, a side of humanity which is uplifting. And you think that if back to the Sandinista women, that exists, that is there as a possible real social movement, which could, I think, be the thing that brings down this this vision of high of patriarchy, which is just so pernicious. And we now have men engaging. Um, yeah, there's men engaged, there's Pramunda, there's Sonki. There's a beginning, I think, of an understanding that gender doesn't just mean women. That it really does mean looking at and examining the structures of power and how all, how all of us, apart from the very, very few, do not benefit from those structures of power. So we have to change them. Um, and I think that's, that's what gives me, I think, a lot of hope is that there are so many of us. We just need to be better at organizing so that we can network and, and make a difference. And that's why, you know, our 100th anniversary, I believe it, Wilf is 100 years old. The end of this month, 27th, 29th of this month, we're bringing women and some men from all over the world, mainly conflict zones, but not just. We have the Nobel laureates. And what we want to do is we really want to start that social mobilization you know, fit for purpose for this, this century because we really, as we said earlier, you know, this is, this is the moment. It's really the most dangerous period in my life for sure. Yeah. And we, we need to get ourselves organized to, to change it. And if Margaret Wallstrom and her foreign policy is the one that gives us the entry point, then we should all get behind that and say we want our governments to do the same. And on that note, we will say goodbye. And thank you so well, much. You- that was Amazing. Um, yeah, well, thanks. That was really uh, good of you to have me so I can vent some of my frustrations. <laughs> okay, we'll be in touch again. Good talking to you. Thank you. Thanks, Madeline. Bye. That was Madeline Rees from the Women's 
International League for Peace and Freedom. And she was talking about Margot Wallström, who was the foreign minister for Sweden, who refused to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. Lynn has joined us. Hello, everybody. <laughs> a little bit late this morning, but hello. I think um, it's very interesting, isn't it? We have a woman foreign minister also. Do you think she might follow Mar- Margot Wilstrot's, um example, Lali? Dreams, dreams, <laughs> dreams, Lynn, come on. <laughs> but it is an interesting point, isn't it? Because yes. uh, it, it does, make us re- does make us remember that it's not actually just about gender. It's very much about political orientation. Um, as well. Yes, very much so. Well, Margaret Thatcher wasn't exactly revolutionary, no, was No, no. But, you know, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, uh, uh, I was interested to hear um, that it's having its um, 100th anniversary this year because um, it was, I think, set up during the First World War uh, by women who were opposed to uh, that war um, and have been fighting ever since against wars. Um, I know... Uh, you know, next week, uh, ne- well, next fortnight, we'll be talking specifically about um, the the implications of war, and uh, <clears throat> and um, at the recent Labor History Conference, the, the the heading of that conference was fighting for peace, and um, I think you know when we think about war, it's nice to think about fighting for peace, and that's definitely what Wolf does. That's definitely what uh, the interviewer. You know, interviewing was about. Um, yeah, it, I mean, Madeline is such a fighter. You know, she yeah. she has done the the, the works. You know, working working in um, refuges, dealing with domestic violence, helping people in conflict areas, and she was a teacher. Then she became a lawyer. It's amazing history she's got, and. and it's good to see that people around the UN, because we have a, a very maybe a, a warped view of the UN, because it's always difficult. Like for example, Ban Ki Moon flew to to um, Hollywood to to intervene in the movie Whistleblower, which was based on Ma- um, Madeleine Reese's experience in Serbia Herzegovina, where she was for almost five years, mm. and he he had tried to manipulate and and tell the the makers of that movie to say that, well, UN does do a lot of good work, so you've got to put that balance in as well. They said no. So it was interesting, her, her status in that arena, mm. especially in Europe, is, is an is a amazingly a powerful one. And we're lucky to get her to talk to us, which is great. Mm. And she's happy to talk to people. And she's very down-to-earth. That's what I like about her. She's someone who's been on the ground and then gone up in the ladder but hasn't forgotten where she came from. And her experience with the Sandinista women, I think, um, certainly um, helped her keep her feet on the ground. Uh, but in the next fortnight, we'll be talking more about this. Yes. So that'll be really uh, good. Um, and in the intervening week, we have Anzac. And we won't be here for that. But Annie McLaughlin will do that one. So we're getting near to the end of the program. Um, thank you for listening. This is Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial and streaming live on the web.